Hey everybody, this is Johnny and Ivy from Gordon College, and you're listening to the Outcast Podcast, where you'll hear stories of the cross-cultural challenges and joys that international and multicultural students experience while studying in the United States. On Outcast, we invite international and multicultural students to share their background and to help bring understanding to their diverse perspectives on the world. Michelle Bayer-Jargal is a senior graduating with a degree in economics and philosophy. He was born in Mongolia and raised between Mongolia, Massachusetts, and the UK. Michelle is a rower for the college and claims to read. But more importantly to him, he likes talking about prophylicity, ideology, and Slavoj Žižek. Welcome, Michelle. Welcome. We're really glad to have you. Thank you for having me. Yeah, of course. So... We would like to start with a quick icebreaker just to get things going. Um, so could you answer what are three things you can't get in the States that you can get in Mongolia or the UK? Ooh, the first answer is there's a German brand of like a supermarket essential, like the, you know, the, the cheap non-brand line mm-hmm. that every supermarket has. Yeah. I think that's the equivalent. It's called like Guten Gunstig. And they have this line of what are called paprika chips, and they're really good, and they're sold everywhere in Mongolia. They're hard to find in the States. In Mongolia? Yeah, yeah, yeah. What? Because Mongolia gets a lot of... A lot of our supermarkets buy bulk items from this brand in Germany. Um, And so paprika (laughs) chips is one thing that I miss a lot. I actually have other friends in America who grew up in Mongolia who, you know, we all all complain together that we don't get paprika chips here. (laughs) Um, Okay, so that's one. That's number one, yes. The second thing that you don't get is a really lackadaisical attitude towards seatbelts uh, in cars. I mean, people wear their seatbelts now more than they used to 10 years ago, but in Mongolia, we're still pretty chill. We don't I mean nobody in the back row is really required to wear their seatbelt. Oh, wow. But, yeah. For this one, I think I'll just explain a cultural norm that I'm used to that it's very weird that I don't do anymore. Um, and it's that in Mongolia, if you accidentally step on someone's foot, you have to shake their hand afterwards. What? Yeah, yeah. I think it's a way of apologizing. But I th- there is also some kind of customary meaning to that that I'm actually not aware of. But you have to do that in Mongolia. It's a sign of respect. It's a sign of disrespect if you don't do it. Uh, and wow. over here, many times I've accidentally stepped on someone's foot and um, wanted to shake their hand and then caught myself. And like, okay, wait a minute. They don't actually do that here. It wouldn't make any sense if I did that. Wow. That's actually really nice. Yeah. That is nice. So you were born in Mongolia, but you grew up in Massachusetts and the UK. Could you give us a brief rundown of your life growing up in three very different places around the globe? Sure. I'll explain my family first. So I'm the oldest of four kids. Uh, and so as a family, um, we kind of added members as we went along. So I was born first. I was, I was born in Mongolia. Uh, and then my sister was born right before we as a family, me mom, my dad, and uh, my sister and I, we moved to Massachusetts uh, and then we lived here between like 2004 and 2009. We went back and back and forth a little, a, a few times. Um, and then while in America, my little brother was born. Mm-hmm. We moved to England in 2009 and my sister was born there. So then by that point, all four of us had been born. And then we lived in the UK for a couple of more years later. And then we went back to Mongolia in 2013 when I was 11. And so for me, all of my secondary education was in Mongolia um, but my siblings and I, we all went to um, an English uh, private school together. Um, so we didn't actually go to a Mongolian public school. So we mm-hmm. were still quite immersed in 
I guess you could say a, a bit of English culture or Western culture more broadly, because a lot of our classmates also spoke English or they consumed American and English media. So that's the timeline. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Can you tell us one similarity you saw between those three countries and one difference that you saw between those three countries? If you can't think of a similarity, that's fine. I'll, I'll say it this way. You know, um, there is some discussion over like, quote unquote, hot cultures and cold cultures in terms of the way people interact with one another, how warm they are socially with other people. Um, so I guess you could say that if you were to plot on like a line or on a, on a gradient from like a hot culture to a cold culture, I think you could say that Britain is the most cold. Mm. And then you could say that America is somewhere in the middle. I mean, the Northeastern United States is still fairly cold. <laughs> and then Mongolia would be more on the warm side, I guess, of that spectrum. So you can imagine that people in Mongolia, they tend to be very generous. They mm. like inviting people over to their homes. They, they really honor and value guests. Guests are very important to them, right? Mm. And so to be a good host is like part of what it means to be a good member of the community is to be able to host people well. Mm. And people are also a lot more lax about time. Like people talk about island time here, you know, um, to describe a certain attitude towards, you know, well, punctuality isn't really a big priority. Um, and it's not the case in Mongolia either. Mongolians are quite relaxed about time. Um, mm. Some people say that it's because we used to be a pastoral nomadic culture that didn't really depend oh, on time and mm. like time in a strict measured kind of clock sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And those are qualities that I miss about Mongolia sometimes. I do uh, miss a little bit more of an open communal feeling from Mongolia. I think that there are lots of unspoken rules in both the UK and America about when it's proper to, in, well, not invite yourself. I mean, rarely is it ever proper to invite yourself over to someone's home, right? <laughs> That's a kind of thing that we don't really have in Mongolia. It's not, there's not so much fear around domestic boundaries. Like that's not really a big mm. thing. Thank you. Could you talk more about the time or the moment when you realize that you are a third culture kid? As a concept, I've been aware of it for a long time. Uh, in fact, as as pretty much as early as I can remember, my parents were using the vocabulary of, you know, third culture kid versus missionary kid versus cross-culture kid, right? Oh, wow. Um, that awareness was there. I, I think they, they read whatever book came out that, you know, changed, a, revolutionized, I guess, the sphere of what it meant to be TCK. They read that book early on. And so I, I was always aware of, of it as a concept. Um, but I don't think I really internalized it until I moved back to Mongolia because while we as a family were living in the UK and the US, my parents were not super concerned with making sure that we integrated fully into the countries we were in. Not to say that they kept us apart or they tried to keep us from connecting to the to the country we're in. It's more like they always had an attitude that we're going to eventually go back to Mongolia. We are a Mongolian family. We're mm -hmm. going to do things the Mongolian way, whatever that looks like. Mm -hmm. um, it was only when we got back that I realized that actually there seems like there's a massive gulf here between the kind of life that we had all Im imaged for ourselves when we were living abroad, right? We had this kind of fantasy image of what it would be like to live in Mongolia again. Mm. And to see the gap between achieving that, what it meant for me culturally, what it meant I would have to behave like, how I'd interact with my classmates, um, what, kind, what kind of attitudes I would have to display towards my elders or my peers. They just look different, right? It's not to say that Mongolia is like an impossible culture to navigate. It was just as a kid who hadn't really spent much time in Mongolia as a young child, coming back to it at a point when I was, you know, ostensibly growing up to be a quote unquote young man, right? I was 11 years old, right? And that was quite tricky. And so I think that was when I really felt in my, in my heart, I guess you could say, 
oh man, yeah, this third culture kid thing is like, this is real, this is legit, and I'm, f- I'm feeling this very much right now. Mm. Yeah, and it sounds like you were going into Mongolia with this view of a more idealized culture, mm-hmm. right? So I'm curious, do you have input on this idea of how TCKs think about an idealized culture? Mm-hmm. You thought Mongolian culture would be one way, because when you're abroad, obviously it's in your imaginary, right? Mm-hmm. You're envisioning it. But mm-hmm. how how did that play out when you moved there? I think, yes, it's a common experience. Lots of TCKs, you know, especially if they're living in a country that is different from the, maybe you say the ethnicity or the nationality of their parents. If the idea is that, man, I'm living abroad, right? Some part of me, some root some ancestral connection to my land, right? That's a very important concept in Mongolia is to is, is the land that you were born on. Literally, they call it the land that you fall on, right? On oh, wow. Um, it's a very poetic term uh, because the, the, your connection to the land is from, from the moment that you touch it first as, a, as an infant. That defines part of your identity for a very long time, um, at least in a lot of Mongolian literature and um, poetry. If some part of you feels like it's been disconnected, then it's very easy to imagine an idealized version of yourself or even of, of circumstances mm-hmm. that would that would make everything okay again, make everything whole, right? Because mm-hmm. the grass is always greener on the other side. Why? Mm-hmm. Well, because I look at the grass that I'm currently on. It may be pretty nice, but, you know, there's some problems with it. I'm not entirely comfortable. Maybe in my own skin, the way that I am right now, I feel like I'm incomplete. I feel like some part of me just doesn't get what's going on. I don't feel whole in myself. So for uh, someone in that kind of position to know that, they were quote unquote supposed to be born and living in another country. It's an it's a very simple, it's a very convenient fantasy to project your feelings of what the world is supposed to look like, or at least what your world is supposed to look like. Mm. And so if I think, man, you know, I, I really don't like living in America right now, but I am Mongolian. If only I was living in Mongolia, then I'd be where I belong. Mm. Um, super easy sentiment to fall into. Mm. And I mean, it's uh, it's not necessarily harmful. I mean, you can derive a lot of comfort out of it when you're in an uncomfortable place or if you're in a situation you don't want to be in. Um, if you're not getting along with your classmates, for example, easy, easy fantasy. Um, <laughs> um, but it is a fantasy that at some point you will have to reckon with when you deal with it, when you confront it face to face, when you actually look at the, the it that you were looking after, you were chasing after. Let's say you move to Mongolia and then you realize, wait a minute, I'm like a fish out of water, right? I don't belong in either world. Mm. Oh, both of these places don't feel comfortable for me. I feel like this place that my parents had been telling me about this entire time isn't <laughs> what it all seemed like. Mm. Uh, and yet the place that I was just dying to leave earlier or feeling like I was somehow didn't belong there, I was kind of an imposter there. Suddenly that's no, that was never ideal. And, you know, you're kind of trapped between a rock and a hard place. Mm. Thanks for sharing. Yeah. What was one aspect of change that you enjoyed throughout your life, throughout moving around, living in these different countries? And what was one aspect that you did not like? I distinctly remember when my family was about to move from the States to the UK. At this point, we were we, we were summering um, in Indiana because my dad was at, I think, a Bible college taking a course or something. And so we were there and we, so we moved from the Northeast or we moved from New England all the way to the Midwest. And so mm-hmm. a completely different culture in itself. Right. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, so I remember distinctly one of the, I guess one of my dad's buddies uh, at the Bible college, he was telling me all about the different vocabulary that they use in England. They, oh, they don't call it an umbrella. They call it a brawly. Right. <laughs> or um, they don't call it a flashlight. They call it a torch. I oh found that super gosh. interesting as a kid. You know, I was like, whoa, 
they use all these different words like they speak English, you know, ostensibly the Americans descend in part from the English and yet they have all these different customs and words. Mm-hmm. And so my seven-year-old self was fascinated with that idea. And that was the first really big transition right, in my life, culturally, moving from the States to the UK, because even though I'd moved to the States when I was two, when you're that young, you don't really remember all that much, right? So it wasn't, it didn't, I guess the first, like, landmark shift in my life culturally was that moment, and so kind of learning about the way that people are different and the small little differences. And, you know, as a child as well, naturally children are very curious. They're kind of sponges. They just kind of absorb the environment around them, right? So when I moved to the UK, also my first instinct was, whoa, Heathrow Airport doesn't really look all that different from like wherever <laughs> we flew out of in the States. You know, all of the technology is the same. The airports look the same, right? Even the people look the same. And then you kind of take a slightly closer look and you realize, wait a minute, you know, things do sound different. Things are different. So finding those mm. little differences... And then just comparing them, tallying them in my head, you know, just finding pleasure in the th- in the fact that there is information to be learned. It's just all trivia, right? It's all fun little trivia for you to make sense of your life as a child. But I really enjoyed doing that. And so I did that when I got to Mongolia, too. I talked to my parents about, oh, well, you know, when we lived in Cambridge, there were trees and, you know, there's grass everywhere. There's nature everywhere. But then suddenly we moved to UB, Ulaanbaatar, the, the capital of Mongolia, and everything's concrete. And we're, there's always traffic. Oh, I wonder why there's skyscrapers here, but not back in the UK, right? And so, like, stuff like that. That was probably very entertaining mm. for my brain, and it still is today. You're obviously graduating from college, so I'm wondering, could you talk more about your experiences at Gordon, interacting with different cultures, and then also you mentioned that you studied abroad in Edinburgh in Scotland, and that was a really shaping experience for you, so I'm curious to hear more about how college changed your understanding of culture. Mm. By the time I left Mongolia to come to Massachusetts, to Gordon, you know, this is hot off the heels of the, pan- of the pandemic, right? I'd been cooped up in my room for a year by myself. I was very desperate to kind of get out and get on with life. And so mm-hmm. coming to Gordon was a, an enormous sigh of relief. First off, just, oh man, I get to finally be in a place where I interact with people again. Oh my gosh, I've missed this so much. And I also came back with some anticipation that I would kind of blend in immediately, no problems Right. I, I knew what I was doing, so to speak. Mm. I'd been around American people my whole life. I thought, I'll, I'll just fit right in. This is no problem, right? The classic struggle. Yeah. <laughs> and it worked. Uh, I mean, <laughs> people knew that, um, they knew from my voice and my accent that I, I wasn't totally American, but, you know, I made myself understood. It wasn't like they were trying to interact with a foreigner, I feel like. Mm. Um and, and, and so that worked very well for me. I didn't feel like inter- I was interacting with foreigners, right? I thought I was interacting with, you know, just people that I, I'd, I'd been around, right? I knew I've been around Americans. But it was only after a few years, you know, when you actually really have to get to know people and meet them and properly understand their internal world and kind of the, the things going on in their lives, their families, their emotions, their, 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 their mental struggles. Um, it was only at that point that I realized, well, okay, wait a minute. This actually, maybe I don't know this culture as well as I thought I did. Mm. Because and then I had to remind myself, well, when I was in Mongolia, I was interacting with quote unquote Westerners as they were guests in my, ostensibly what was my home, right? They were the guests to my culture. And so even though Americans have, I think, a well-deserved stereotype of being quite brash, loud, abrasive, even obtrusive, 
still I was interacting with them as a foreign type, even though I felt familiar with them. Mm. Mm. So coming to the States and suddenly the roles are switched around and I'm entering someone else's world. Like that was when a whole bunch of distinctions became really clear to me. Yeah, I've, I've come to appreciate those a lot more recently. Mm. And you also studied abroad and you kind of went back to the UK, mm-hmm. right? So could you talk more about that experience of like kind of a reverse culture shock almost? Yes, right? yeah. Man, going to Edinburgh was really weird um, because I, again, I had confided in the hope that I knew the kind of culture I was stepping into, right? Okay, yeah, I've done this rodeo before, right? Four years is not a short amount of time. And then you realize, well, I knew how to interact with English culture when I was 10. I knew what it looked like to kind of live in England or live in the UK because, you know, Scotland as a child, right? But the (laughs) conventions and rules are very different from when you're an adult, when you have your own autonomy. How do you set plans? You know, how do you text people? These are very trivial questions. They're questions that are easy to answer, right? You learn these things, you pick them up quickly. But yet again, it was like another harsh reality check of, okay, yeah, you know, these aren't your people, so to speak, either, right? Mm. Here's another group of foreigners that um, you are entering their space. This looks different on the other end. I wrote a little reflection in the Tartan about my experience in Edinburgh. Could you just mention for the audience what the Tartan is? Yes. Oh, my goodness. The Tartan <laughs> is Gordon College's official student newspaper. Or um, the other subtitle it goes by is like the voice of students since 1958. Okay. Mm-hmm. Tartan's a big deal, supposedly. Um, <laughs> I was the editor of it last year. Oh, wow. Um, and uh, the Tartan is the student. Yes, yeah, the student newspaper. So it's all completely student run. Uh, we do have a faculty advisor, but the students write the articles. The students are, edit the articles. The mm-hmm. entire team, the photographer, is a Gordon student, and then we all, you know, they all work together to put together the student newspaper. Um, the latest edition, the Valentine's edition, just released. So if you find a copy of it around campus, please pick it up and read it. It's cool. good work done by good people. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, in this reflection piece, I basically d- tried to explain. As you're moving between cultural spaces, what does it look like to reflect on what you thought you knew before you left, right? Before this shift happened, before you made the move, the space that you used to occupy, the world that you lived in, right? The way you thought things worked, Mm. right? How that looks differently to you once you make the move, once you make the shift. I like to use this kind of diagram to explain the different things that we know and that we don't know. All right, and it goes something like this. You can divide the world of what you know and what you don't know. Well, the first off is the easiest is the stuff that you know that you know. These are the known knowns, right? I know that I know, for example, how much a sandwich at Dunkin' costs. I know that I know how long it'll roughly take me to get on 128 and go to Beverly at rush hour versus non-rush hour, right? These are kind of standard, just information that I picked up. I've absorbed, I know what I'm doing here, right? Mm -hmm. But then when you go abroad, you step into a world of unknown unknowns, right? These are things that you didn't know that you didn't know them. Mm. Um, and this is that's why it's so exciting to go abroad and sometimes why it's kind of nauseating. It makes you homesick because you're you're realizing, oh man, I hadn't even thought of that. That's, that's really the phrase that people say. Like, oh, I hadn't even thought about <laughs> whether I should have packed... For, for me, like I completely forgot about this until my, my girlfriend, Kate, she reminded me, wait, you need to get adapters because they don't all use the same like <laughs> sockets over there. Right. Uh, and, and so you get introduced to a whole bunch of stuff you didn't know you didn't know. Very exciting 
also makes you a bit uncomfortable, but that's okay. That's what the learning process looks mm-hmm. like, right? But before you go to this other foreign place, there's a whole bunch of stuff that you know that you don't know, right? And these are formed usually by perceptions of, you know, like from, from an American perspective, what does Scotland look like? Okay, well, they have this going on. They have the haggis thing. They have um, the kilts. Oh, and <laughs> I know that Scotland and England kind of have a, a rough history together, right? But I don't know the precise details, right? I don't know exactly which cities are where, but I know that Scotland has cities, or I can assume that um, UK, um, I don't know, has this going on. I just don't know the specifics, right? Those are the known unknowns. These are things I know that I don't know the precise, you know, quantities of or the descriptions. Mm-hmm. But that's okay, because I kind of have a rough idea. I can get, I can get to it. Now, the really important and what I think is the most interesting part of this four-part quadrant, right, is the last square, which are the unknown knowns. These are the things that you didn't know that you knew. And that, I think, is the second part of what makes going abroad so formative in people's experiences, is that not only are you learning stuff about the culture you're entering, you're also realizing that there were many unspoken assumptions, little rules, little patterns or assumptions of belief that you had held that you didn't realize you had until you went abroad, right? So for me, it was an interesting recontextualization experience, not only going to a culture that I thought that I knew, which was the UK, but then I also reflected back on how much more American I had become at my time at Gordon College. Mm. This is an example that I use. Um, when people asked me, oh, oh, so you're you're on exchange, where are you from, or which college do you go to? And I'd say, well, Gordon College. Most people, obviously, they've never heard of Gordon College. In fact, I don't think a single person that I met in Scotland knew what Gordon College was. <laughs> I mean, why would they, right? It's a small liberal arts college, right? right? Um, in but the then, US. <laughs> but then, in the US, people have associations for what that means, right? Small Christian liberal arts college. Okay, well, I know it's a liberal arts college, so they have like a general core curriculum. Mm -hmm. I know that it's Christian. Oh, okay, well, yeah, I know Christian colleges exist. Mm -hmm. I may not know what it's like to attend one, but I know that they exist as a category of thing out there. Mm -hmm. But if I I said it's a small Christian liberal arts college to a lot of people in Britain, they didn't, they didn't know what that meant. <laughs> um, they First off, I mean, college isn't the word that they use, right? Usually it's university, right? right. A college uh, de- like designates... school? Yeah, college designates um, either the very end of your secondary education, so this is right when you're taking the equivalent of your SAT over in the UK, mm. right? Or college refers to like a technical school. Mm. So they don't use college uh, liberal arts. Maybe some of them have heard it. And some of them probably have heard the meme about liberal arts college students being unemployable, right? Blah, blah, blah. Um, (laughs) But they don't really know, like, the cultural history behind why we do the liberal arts. Um, And they also don't know um, what it's like to be a Christian university. Mm. Now, like, the UK obviously is still a religious country, Church of England, powerful institution. um, And they have Church of England schools, but they don't know what it really means for university, right? A university being religious? What? I thought most academics were done with the whole God thing, right? We don't need God anymore. We, mm. like, Most universities in Europe are assumed to be highly secular spaces where the spiritual really isn't an element of anyone's life, um, let alone a drawing factor for students. Students deliberately come to Gordon College because it is Christian, and that's quite an unfamiliar concept to people living not in America. So then... 
the known unknown kind of reveals itself when you reflect and you think upon all of the just the stuff that you took for granted that you didn't know you even processed in the back of your mind, right? These are very important cultural assumptions that form how you navigate through the world, but you wouldn't know it unless you left it. Mm. And and that's what the known or the unknown known dimension looks like. Thank you. That's so interesting. Thank you so much. We talked about your time at Gordon and how that has helped shape your viewers culture but you're also on the rowing team. Mm-hmm. And so we were wondering specifically, how has the rowing team helped shape your view of culture? First off, I have to say that rowing has been extremely important to me at my time at Gordon. I've, again, only upon reflection realized just how important it has been kind of as an underpinning sort of constant factor that's been at my pretty much my whole time at Gordon. I've been rowing for, this is my third year, academic year rowing now. Um, so I've rowed in all years, but my freshman year very constant, stable support. Um, and it, it's, it's, it's an athletic endeavor, right? So you have to be very disciplined, right? You know, you have the daily practices, you wake up early, you have to take care of your sleep, you have to eat well, right? You have to, it, it structures your life. It's a very good structuring, organizing force. Here's the thing though, and this is true with a lot of athletic endeavors, is that there is very much a social and a class dimension who gets to participate in which sports? Sports are a very, very cultural phenomenon. I mean, the Super Bowl was just a couple weekends ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, great fun. Not that I knew what was going on, but... Uh, <laughs> you know, when you have a really tough endurance sport like rowing, cycling is another example, um, you have to carve out so much of your time to this endeavor if you really want to be like a performance athlete. If you're doing it for fun, then you're doing it for fun. There's no, you don't, you you go as hard as you want to, right? But if you're in a structured setting, like a college sports team, or if you are trying to go pro, you're trying to go, you know, then you have to pour so much time and effort and energy into it, which time is a resource that's not available to all people. It's not equally distributed, right? Some folks have to, you know, pay bills and so they can't sink two, three, four hours of their day every day into an athletic endeavor, right? Mm. And so culture is a very important element of who gets to participate in which sports. Rowing, Mm -hmm. for example, man, it's really expensive. I mean, the boats and, well, they're called shells, right? The shells and the oars or the, the, the blades that we use to row in the water they're really expensive, like super, super expensive stuff. So in, in order to even have a rowing team, you need to be in a financially privileged position either to buy your own stuff or to pay a club fee to join. Now, thankfully, rowing at Gordon uh, is is completely free, right? So long as you qualify for the team, you don't have to pay any fees to do it. Like transportation is taken care of. Accommodations are also taken care of when you go out for races. And so I really appreciate the fact that uh, our coach, Coach Hopkins, she tries very much to make it as accessible as possible to all sorts of people, which is why, you know, I was able to row and also able to work for pretty much my whole time at college simultaneously. It's a balancing act, but it is possible. All of this, you know, this uh, background is to say that rowing is statistically a, a rich white elite sport, right? You have to have loads of time to sink into it. Um, you also have to be wealthy enough to participate either in the clubs or here's the really crazy part. You have to live in a zip code where there is even a rowable body of water <laughs> and people interested in rowing it. No, it's serious. It's a cultural thing, right? Yeah. If I live in a town with a prominent rowing scene, I'm much more likely to row than if I right. grow up in the middle of the desert uh, or in, <laughs> in Mongolia in the middle of the mountains uh, where there are no rowable bodies of water and there is no cultural 
culture around rowing, right? Mm. And so when I'm navigating this space that is traditionally quite wealthy, quite privileged, Gordon is really the exception to the rule in that regard. I don't, I don't personally see a lot of elitism going on in the Gordon College rowing scene. But when we go to the races and we see the other big schools, right, all the Ivy names that we come across, right, we've got the Harvards and the Princetons and the Yales of the world at the races that we go to, it's first off just a kind of a weird, cool moment for me to be like, oh, huh, you know, I never even grew up with rowing. I didn't know the sport existed until I came to college. How fun is it that I get to be here and experience this whole other dimension of culture that I'm not used to? Mm. When I reflect on why it is that I'm comfortable being in a sport that is predominantly white, upper class, I pause to think about the kinds of settings that I've been raised in, right? So when my family was in Massachusetts, my dad was studying at Gordon-Conwell. So I actually lived just like two, three miles from campus on the Gordon-Conwell campus. It's not like we had loads of friends in high places, but we lived in a very affluent part of the country, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Massachusetts, especially the North Shore, really great place to live. Quality of standard of life, you know, very nice, very lovely place to live. Um, And then when we lived in Cambridge in the UK, because my dad was studying at Cambridge, you know, for those of you who don't know, Cambridge is considered, you know, one of the really old school, like very posh elite universities, right? And so Cambridge, as a result, being in a privileged position in British culture and society and the world because of its academic standards also means that Cambridge also happens to be a pretty nice affluent place to live. Mm-hmm. There are, you know, some parts of town are rougher than others. Um, and so I think, man, you know, I wonder if I had grown up in a space where there was more racial antagonism, right? Mm. More class antagonism. If I was made much more keenly aware of the kinds of history of privilege and of class distinctions that characterize a sport like rowing. I mean, this is especially more so in the UK than in the US because class is so much more important and remains a part of the culture in the UK more than it does in the US. For a lot of people, rowing is like, oh, I would never touch that. Like, that's like a that's like a posh, like thing that that's part of a world that I wouldn't even see. I wouldn't even think myself of being in that space. Mm. And the fact that I'm able to walk into it, and as a result, I have something now in common with these kinds of privileged people. I still haven't come to a conclusion as to what that means, although. I do think that it's no accident that I don't find myself made uncomfortable in the position of participating in a privileged sport. Mm. Mm. But yeah, I, I hope that makes sense. Yeah, it definitely did. I love your thought process mm. with that. It was really great. Thank you. Yeah. And in light of your really robust understanding of what it means to be a third culture kid, I'm curious in your own words, could you describe the value of being a TCK or what gives TCKs a unique role to play in the world? Well, first off, I, I, I completely understand the sentiment behind the question, right? You know, what are TCKs to do in this world? How are we supposed to contribute to, you know, what's going on right now? I just want to say that I don't think that being a TCK is necessarily a privileged position in the sense that it, it somehow makes you more whole or more intelligent or more capable of a person in any one respect. I mean, maybe it does, right? But it's different across different people, right? We're all different people. And that's really the important part is that being a TCK is just one of the very many ways one can be different, right? Within the TCK space, people love to talk about um, 
you know, oh, you know, there's so much value in diversity, right? We're all different. We can learn from one another. We can exchange ideas and I can become more culturally aware and I can, you know, talk to more kinds of people. I mean, those are all instrumental values of growing up as a TCK for sure. But what it misses is that you cannot reduce being a TCK to an instrumental good, right? It's not something that, it's not an attribute that is acquired for the sake of doing better at XYZ. I don't want people to think of being TCK as like a special attribute that unlocks special powers. Mm -hmm. If being a TCK isn't to be sought after for its instrumental value, then there must be something else good about it internally, intrinsically, right? What's so good about this position, this thing called being a TCK? And I would argue that it is just one of the many avenues through which it is possible to realize the arbitrariness of your own identity and your own social situation, right? In the, in the discourse about being multicultural and being diverse, we often hear that, you know, we're different from one another, we can learn, right? But I think what is often goes unsaid, and this is kind of censored, I mean, for good reason, right? But an element of that that is kind of censored is that part of meeting a culture that you're unfamiliar with is you're kind of weirded out. It's it's strange. It's odd. It's like, whoa, I would never think to do that. That's quite a strange. Oh, okay. I didn't realize this. Right. It's it, it's a very puzzling kind of space to be in. Right. And so you can't help sometimes but think, wow, these people are weird. These people are different to me. These people are strange. Right. And obviously that kind of attitude can be taken in a xenophobic direction. Right. You can do all sorts of horrible, racist, you know, genocidal intentions out of that kind of feeling but if you direct the feeling towards a self-reflection of the realization that well to these people i'm probably pretty funky too right i do things in a way that's very different to them right and so the point is this is what i mean by culture is relative culture is not the you cannot take for granted that just the structures that you exist in at any one time are the way things have to be, or that this is the only way that we can organize our family. This is the only way we can organize education, right? You limit the possibility of what human organization, what human life, what human structure can look like if you're stuck to your ways, right? And so the the value of being a TCK is that you you are in a position to more radically embrace the fact that we're all living within these different cultural pockets and that there's this gulf, there's rift, this kind of empty space, that this chasm that I have to leap over to reach the other side of the person that I'm trying to interact with, right? I'm just introduced to how complex and how much our cultures are constantly shifting, right? The common points the, the things that we have in common, the things we don't have in common, our differences, it, it's, it's a big world, right? And so this is what I mean kind of by uncovering the unknown unknowns, right? And so being a TCK, jumping between different cultural contexts or just living in between them can, can, put, can put a completely different spin on what you think is possible, right? Now, to bring this to the Christian faith... In a context like Gordon College, what does being a TCK mean in a, in, in, a, in a Christian setting? Or even, I think, for the pursuit of Christian learning, Christian life, is that 
you are this awareness of the arbitrariness and the shifting nature of culture also puts into perspective what it means for Christ's sacrifice to represent all of humanity, right? What does it mean for Christ to die for all people, right? Mm -hmm. Not just some people, right? The, the gift of salvation is not excluded from certain kinds of people just by that, by their nature, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so, okay, so Christ does, you know, Christ dies for all of, that's the language we use, Christ dies for all of our sins, right? Well, your sins have a cultural dimension to them as well, right? The things that you feel guilty about, the things that you feel shameful about, right? Um, we, we can also say that Christ doesn't just die for sin. Die, Christ dies for brokenness, for human brokenness. Mm. Well, human brokenness also looks very different depending on where you're from and what kind of assumptions you have, what kind of, you know, ideological structures you've put in place, you know? What is your relationship to other people, to institutions, to government, to education, to your children, right? Because of the cultural structures that define and mediate what your world looks like. So too your brokenness and your sinfulness is a reflection of those very, you know, uh, diverse, I guess you can say, contexts. And so in order for Christ to assume all of those, to, you know, effectively, the theological term is to recapitulate, to rehead the human race. Christ also has to be familiar with every angle, every dimension of the human experience, of human identity, of human culture, right? And this is what it means for Christ to be universal. This is what it means for Christ's sacrifice to be universal and what it means for the Christian church, right? Mm. The capital C church to be a global body, right? Mm. We're all in this together, right? If, if, if the Bible is to be believed and there is something to this whole we are made in and through the image of God thing, right? Then I have to embrace all of your particularities, but I'm only... Here's the here's the really crazy part. I'm only able to do this insofar as I identify with Christ, who in turn identifies with everyone, mm -hmm. right? Hmm. Christ is that bridge to the dimensions of other people's inner world that I don't have, right? Hmm. Christ opens that up. Christ kind of short circuits the structures that you've put in place to prevent that kind of connection, that kind of empathy, and that kind of relationship with other people. In the current, I want to say, conservative discourse that is really critical of the fact that in a lot of modern university settings, people keep talking about identity. Oh, why do we keep talking about race? Why do we keep talking about gender, right? I thought these things were settled. Clearly, the Bible says X, Y, Z. Shouldn't we have settled this by now? Mm -hmm. Why do you keep bringing it up, right? This kind of attitude that underlies a lot of the skepticism towards you know, critical ideologies or critical gender studies or uh, critical, you know, race, race theory, theory, whatever. I think that is that that kind of judgment is made in ignorance of the kind of perspective that those practices are able to, um, you know, to open up for those conversations to exist in. Every dimension of the human identity that can be caricaturized to be just about oppression, right? Oh, we just keep talking about all the ways we're oppressed. Okay, yeah, there is an unproductive way to talk about that, but there's also the productive dimension of that too, which is that every single one of these things that we talk about as what makes us different, what puts us in different positions of privilege and power in society, are also particular ways of accessing the universality of Christ, right? 
really the the point isn't that oh diversity is so good because I can learn about you and you can learn about me and we can be more informed worldly people right that's that's kind of a shallow sort of selfish way of thinking about what it means to be in contact with other people like capital O other the others um, the real value of it isn't in your own personal self satisfaction or how much you know it's really about understanding the dimensions of humanity such that you can realize them in in, in Christ's universal recapitulation. Mm. Well, thank you so much, Michelle, for your profound thoughts on all these different understandings of being a TCK and relating to other people. And there's a lot to still unpack, I think, after this conversation, but thank you for your wonderful insight. And yeah, thank you so much. I personally enjoyed listening to it. So thank you. And thank um, you so much for interviewing me. Yeah, of course. <laughs> so we do have a question for our audience. So change can be tough and it can be painful, but change can also give us the possibility of expanding our perspectives and helping us grow. What is one concrete way change has encouraged you to grow? Thank you guys all for listening. And as always, Shalom. shalom. Thank you so much for listening to Outcast. We hope you've enjoyed this conversation. If you would like to help to support this podcast, please share it with your friends and family and your social media. Outcast is now streaming at all major podcast platforms. You can also follow us on our Instagram at ISO underscore Outcast. Thanks for listening.